0: The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and SART. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to SART Fertility Experts, a podcast that brings you discussions on important topics for people trying to build a family. Our experts are members of SART, the Society for Assisted Reproductive
1: Technology, an organization dedicated to ensuring you receive quality fertility care. So, um, I'm Dr. Daniel Groh, and I am the uh, Division Chief and Fellowship Director at University of Connecticut. And, you know, today we have a very special guest, um, Dr. William Gibbons, who... Is not only was not only my fellowship director um, years ago, but he's had a, an illustrious career in reproductive medicine. I'd like to hit just a few of the highlights of his career, and then he's going to talk to us today about what makes a reproductive endocrinologist and infertility specialist who they are. Um, so Dr. Gibbons is a professor of OBGYN, the director of reproductive endocrinology and infertility at the Baylor College of Medicine. He's the fellowship director there. He's a former department chair. And he was an early leader in the field of in vitro fertilization. In fact, during his time at at USC was developed the second IVF program in the United States. And then and then as chair at Eastern Virginia Medical School, set up one of the first PGD programs in the entire world um, to, you know, to prevent um, genetic disease. Um, he's a past president of the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and a associate editor of Fertility and Sterility. So it's it's really fun to reconnect with you, Dr. Gibbons, and and welcome.
0: Thanks, Dan. I'm delighted to be here today. I appreciate the invitation.
1: Thanks. So let's let's start off right off the top. What is Dr. Gibbons a reproductive endocrinologist?
0: Okay. So. I, I, could, I could start with how do you become a reproductive endocrinologist, if that's it. So I think that, that if you count grade school and, and high school and college, it takes a quarter of a century now to become a reproductive endocrinologist. In fact, my dad asked me if I was ever going to go to work. So
1: <clears throat>
0: maybe I didn't because they say if you enjoy what you're doing, it's not Wow,
1: hope. that's powerful.
0: But, <clears throat> but it means then that beyond, beyond college – Beyond the four years of medical school, okay. Beyond the four years of residency in obstetrics and gynecology, there's another three years of training, of which half of which is devoted to research, and so I think that uh, if we, so it means that we're trying to be, we're trying to train individuals and be trained in the full breadth of the types of diseases that can be that can involve both women themselves or couples who are trying to conceive. Um, and in the training program, uh, as I've indicated, half of it's research, and we think the research is really important for several reasons. One, we have a chance to really work with very talented, you know, PhDs and other researchers, and I feel. But secondly, I think it's only important that we learn how to ask questions. We learn how we would answer questions. We actually then learn how to evaluate the literature. Okay, so that we can understand what is good science and what is good clinical practice and what isn't, so that we can incorporate that into our patient care
1: so it's really fascinating to me and, and a little bit heartwarming actually that that you mention research first as a way to increase depth of knowledge in our field
0: i think that I think that all of us are are coming to terms on ON THE PROCESS OF WHICH WE ARE CONTINUING TO BE STUDENTS, OKAY? AND IF WE STOP BEING STUDENTS, THEN ACTUALLY WE FEEL WE'RE PROBABLY NOT OFFERING OUR PATIENTS THE BEST CARE THAT THEY CAN OBTAIN. AND SO WE THINK THE RESEARCH HELPS US UNDERSTAND THAT. IT MAY it may BE THAT MANY OF US MAY NOT GO, YOU KNOW, MAY NOT GO ON TO DO A LOT OF RESEARCH, BUT we but THE FACT THAT WE KNOW HOW TO DO IT AND HOW TO INTERPRET IT IS, is REALLY IMPORTANT.
1: AND THE PACE OF CHANGE, OF THE TECHNOLOGICAL CHANGES, is increasing rapidly, and so it promotes in each of us the ability to keep up with those changes.
0: Well, I think that we have, we have essentially, uh, to quote uh, Mason Andrews, the chair at EVMS before I, before I joined the department, is it's important that we've regularized this process. That's his term. And the fact <coughs> that, you know, that and, all, and actually all, all uh, OBGYNs do this, But specifically, we have a continuing education program that requires us to review the literature to be able to evaluate certain manuscripts that are important, and we have to pass a test of that. So we have regularized the process of which we are trying to maintain our knowledge base in this very complex and increasingly complex area.
1: So thank you. We're gonna get back to that a little bit more later, I think. But let's, you know, for our audience, Many of the uh, patients out there listening to this are, are wondering, what kind of problems does a, a reproductive endocrine physician treat?
0: Well, we're obviously delighted to help couples who are trying to conceive. And it may be that their issues are that they're not ovulating. It may be that there's mild or even more severe male factor. You know, it could, <clears throat> it could be that they have pelvic adhesions or endometriosis or anatomic things with the uterus of which the uterine the uterus may be congenitally uh, malformed. It may there may be developing issues such as uh, structural abnormalities within the inside of the uterus, such as polyps. It could be fibroids. But also, we also help we help women who are not ready or not attempting to conceive. And this could be women that are amenorrheic; they've stopped having periods. So we try to determine what are the issues that disrupt the system by which the brain tells the pituitary to tell the ovaries to tell the uterus. How to do to function normally, and so we will look at alterations in ovarian function, alterations of adrenal and thyroid function. We we'll, <clears throat> we can evaluate the patient who has hirsutism and, if, and we may treat them for their polycystic over disease. We may treat them because many times polycystic ovary disease is just a very 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 mild form of diabetes, and so we will treat the insulin resistance, and so. But this is not okay. But this does not end, you know, with the middle reproductive years. It's very important to us that we looked at the end of reproductive life, and we're looking at the people that are perimenopausal people people are menopausal because there are important conditions that women who have a loss of ovarian function uh, uh, have to be uh, have to be treated for, such as such as increasing risk for cardiovascular disease, such as osteoporosis.
1: So, so let me let me just focus on 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 a, a piece of what you said first and from what i heard is that the the thing that reproductive the disease that reproductive endocrinologists treat mostly is infertility but infertility is complicated and it can be a whole range of problems from the ovary to the uterus to to other hormonal conditions to the shape of the uterus and, or anomalies and getting down to to identify More precisely, the cause of the infertility is a real benefit to couples.
0: Well, I I think it is, all right? And the reason I say I think it is, because there are clearly couples that walk in the door, they honestly don't absolutely necessarily are focused first on why they're not getting pregnant. They just want to get pregnant, and so we see patients that essentially walk, will come in the door with encyclopedic knowledge you know, of the reproductive system. And we'll have others that are just saying, I can't get pregnant. And so we need to be able to deal, to be able to communicate with patients, to say, well, we think <clears throat> you, know, you have these questions about why, <clears throat> why, you get, why you're not getting pregnant, and these are the reasons that we speak of. But it could be that their communication issues are, are, are much simpler. Just so, help me so
1: how does the reproductive endocrinology fellow learn these skills? How do they learn how to treat the infertility patient?
0: And so, if we look at the you know if we look at the reproductive uh, endocrine fellows' training, you know, which I've indicated is three years, I think that there are multiple ways. Meaning that one of the things they're doing, in some ways, they're almost an apprentice, and so they're working, you know, you know at the at the you know, at the theoretical feet. Of individuals have demonstrated their ability, you know, and their mastery of the type of skills necessary in our field. Secondly, we, you know, we have, and there has to be a certain critical mass to do that. So there has to be a sufficient critical mass of the teachers and mentors to try to make sure that we can instill an interest in our fellows. It is, honestly, as I've been involved, when I say this, it sounds silly, but it is, you know, it is. It is almost a sacred task to be able to participate in the career growth of, of young people, and so we take so it's taken very seriously. Um, but in addition, we have didactics. Okay, we you know, so essentially there's lectures that the the fellows provide. There's lectures that we provide at a very multidisciplinary multidisciplinary approach to try to introduce patients and, and trainees to the into the concept and actually I can't say how thankful I am that uh, that couples that come to see us seem to be very willing to participate in the process of which by which we help them and the fact that we sometimes have other young people working with us so
1: that was a mouthful and it was excellent, actually, in terms of the rigors of the training. You, I, you know, I know from talking to many patients and talking to many OBGYN physicians that there's a feeling that the REI physician um, mostly does in vitro fertilization. And, um, and in vitro fertilization, you know, has been a, a tremendous um, help to the infertile couple. And is it is it true that the only folks who really do who practice um, reproductive who practice IVF are REI physicians?
0: Pretty much. I think that you know. I think that you actually tie to another subject. I I believe that that yes, for the uh, the vast majority, maybe more than ninety five percent of physicians who are involved in in fertilization have had REI training. There are a few people that have been grandfathered and. And whatever. But, but important to that is one of the things that makes me so proud of uh, the American Society of Reproductive Medicine and the Society for Assisted Reproduction. I mean, um, the, while, <clears throat> while there is federal law uh, mandating that we report our IVF results annually, okay, when I look at what uh, SART has done, SART produces validational clinics. SART allows clinics that are underperforming you know, They will allow help to try to go in to improve the nature. So I, I'm proud. I don't think there's another professional organization that provides learning, validation, <clears throat> education, and, continue, you know, and continuing med- medical education and non medical education, from the full, whether, whether it be nurses, whether it be a reproductive biologists, PhDs, et cetera. So I'm very proud of what SARC does because to me it is. One of the most involved professional organizations that I know anything about. But but we, you know, you've indicated. I just want to touch base on one of the other things you've said, and that is, are we just IVF docs? And so, um, so no, I, you know, most a lot of us love to operate, okay. And so and so um, so basically, the types of procedures that we do, we do, lot most of it is most of it's outpatient. It's minimally invasive, and so it could be. Taking a telescope and looking inside the uterine cavity, you know, through this, you know, through the uterine cervix, to diagnose uh, anterior adhesions, endometrial polyps, uh, submucosal fibroids, or uterine malformations such as a, as a septate uterus. But also, we do laparoscopy. At laparoscopy, we treat pelvic adhesions, we treat endometriosis, you know, we remove fibroids, and so, um, and so it is. So it is. I think that. You know, as I've said, we're trying to practice the breadth of reproductive surgery. Now, as an aside, as an aside um, it may be that our focus many times gets pointed, pushed more toward uh, assistive reproduction.
1: So, so let me push you just a little bit on the surgical okay. co- concept. And, you know, in OBGYN, we have the emergence of a new subspecialty minimally invasive gynecologic surgery, MIGS. And, and those folks spend a couple of extra years of training also post their f- fellowship and do surgery. Are there conditions for which a reproductive endocrine doc receives more training than the MIGS physicians? That's a great question, uh, because,
0: I, because I, I, I think that we have seen uh, in, in my hospital that there are more and more cases uh, that are going to the minimum invasive surgeons and less so to reproductive endocrine because they're upstream from some of the referral patterns. But I think that it, it it gets to one of the questions you had discussed with me a few days ago was how do we define the difference between an RAI and other OBGYNs? And I think part of it is focus, okay? Part of it is the fact that we are trying to understand the pathophysiology and we're trying to correct The surgical, you know, through surgical surgery, to produce an environment that increases the likelihood of conception. I find that so. There's no question that there are types of minimally invasive surgery, such as the laparoscopic assisted uh, hysterectomy. But I think that I think that many of us sort of focus. I would say the difference may be focus uh, that we are trying to focus on uh, on specific areas. And so, so there's probably so there's probably. Uh, well, there is. are surgical procedures that we let them, that we think the MIS people are better at doing, but we feel that there's still an important an important area for us. And I think it'll be interesting to see how, you know what type of pattern occurs occurs over the next decade.
1: So the so the focus of the REI physician, um, just to reiterate, uh, hysteroscopy and optimization of the uterus for pregnancy. Correct. And, and that would be that would be. Um, the, a, a real significant focus of the REI physician.
0: Very true. And I think that, and so, and, and so we then, you know, check our work, okay, meaning that if, we, if there is some type of surgical repair involved, we're then going to follow up to make sure that we're satisfied with that. And, and, and that's one of the other things. We ask about some of the exciting places, you know, that um, reproductive endocrine and infertility is going, it involves our, our increased interest and knowledge base on what res, what can result in implantation. What are the issues involved in development of the uterus and how do we do that to increase the likelihood that a fertilized egg is going to implant. And so we think in some ways that helps direct our surgery. So uh, so that we are looking for the type, how do we produce the, the best nest, okay, so
1: to speak. So we've covered a lot of grounds, and we've talked about the journey that an individual has to go through after their OBGYN residency to become an REI physician. Is there a certification process to become an REI physician? Can you, if you're a patient, you know, how can you be assured that, that your physician, you know, passed through this training successfully? I love this question, Okay. And, and that's
0: because, um, for different reasons, okay, you know, if we want someone who's participated uh, in that process as an examiner, that essentially uh, our, our fellows, as they're completing their training, will take a written exam, okay, and they will obtain a pass or a fail. Now, frankly, that's what the vast majority of uh, specialty training programs do. They give, their, they give their trainees an exam at the end of the training phase. But unlike most, okay, and there may be only two other specialties that do this. Uh, we we ask that we ask our trainees to come back after they've been in practice for two or three years, and we give them an oral exam. And so we then have the opportunity to see how well they've learned the techniques. We get to learn to see how they've internalized the process and and how they're actually practicing medicine. And I'm very proud of the fact, that, And while it's a painful process, you know, for the for the trainee, it's it means that we care more and to work very hard to see the person that's out there seeing patients is definitely uh, internalizing the kinds of uh, in times of treatment structures and, and rationales and logic that we think are going to help that are going to help patients further okay i think that and I, <clears throat> and I sort of i sort of hinted at this earlier that there's a maintenance of certification program in which and which essentially Every year, you have you have to take you know you you're you're given literature to read, okay, and then you have to pass a test on it. And admittedly, so some of that is taken as regular such as gynecology, uh, with certain sub focuses on on cancer, maternal fetal medicine, and REI. So we you know so reproductive endocrinologists have to take and uh, uh, and go through a specific set of, of uh, questions and articles and exams to try to maintain maintain their accreditation so but i wanted to say i'm just really proud of the fact that we're actually checking on the quality of our of our ability of our trainees to practice and so and that's a scary thing but it's a wonderful thing for patients
1: you know it, it's this was fun today to, to talk with one of my mentors but someone who i really respect in the field to have explain what an rei physician is and i and I hope that this is valuable to folks. It they takes, stay with us.
0: Yeah, they do. So anyway, so I appreciate this, uh, this opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to SART Fertility Experts, your resource for information on IVF. If you found this podcast useful, please like us on your favorite social media
1: platform and tell your friends about us. For more family building resources, visit www.sart.org/patient-information or www.reproductivefacts.org.